Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals.
Hey everybody, this is The Next Reel, and we spoil movies. I'm Pete Wright. Today on the show, I'm talking to Dr. Ethan Siegel. Ethan is an astrophysicist, author, and science communicator. He is one of the brave ones on the front lines working to make the complexities of science understandable for the rest of us. I've been a personal fan of Ethan's for years. Following his writing on his blog, Starts With a Bang, which lives over at Forbes, where he takes on some serious alpha-level education and debunkery, but we had never met in all this time. Then one day, I get this email that he has just released his latest book and got to thinking that timing might be right for us to chat. How does Ethan Siegel relate to great movies? I'm so glad you asked. His latest book is called Trechnology, The Science of Star Trek from Tricorders to Warp Drive. And I couldn't imagine a better aside to our epic 13-week Trek film mega-series than a conversation with a guy who's dedicated so much of his intellectual efforts to the technology that undergirds this whole universe of Star Trek. Before we dive in, a quick note of thanks to Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash thenextreel. I hope you'll consider supporting the show with a few bucks a month to help us continue to carve out more time from our schedules to continue to grow the next reel and share great conversations with more people, just like the good Dr. Siegel today. This is truly listener-supported media, and with your help, we can make it truly great. Thank you. When I connected with Ethan to record, we found ourselves just talking. It happened so fast, I wasn't even ready for it. And by the time I finally got my ducks in a row and pressed the magic record button, we were already in the throes of discussing the relative scale of Star Trek fandom. You're you're extraordinary at this. You must be the biggest Star Trek fan in the world. On a scale of 1 to 10, how big of a Star Trek fan would you say you are? And I'll give them a number like, um, I'm about an 8. And people will be like, what? What? That's crazy. If you're not a 10, who's a 10? And I have to tell them, you know, I I watch The Next Generation, and I've probably seen every episode of Next Generation, many of them three or four times, but I've only seen most of the movies once, and I probably haven't seen every single episode of the original series or of Enterprise, and and people are like, wow, like, then, then what are you doing writing a book on Star Trek? <laughs> and so I do. I, I have to. I have to admit a little bit of my, you know, of my inadequate nerd cred here. That yeah, I, I love Star Trek. I love the Next Generation. I really like Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And the other series have a special place for me. And I'm still waiting to see how Discovery turns out. But there are definitely bigger Star Trek fans out there than I am. I'm just lucky that what I've encountered of the Star Trek fandom is no matter what you're a fan of, which incarnation is your favorite, which captain is your favorite, which ship is your favorite, or which technologies are your favorite, um, this is a franchise that really welcomes anyone that has this altruistic dream that humanity, by working together, can use science and technology to solve some of the greatest problems facing our species, and that science and technology for the betterment of all of humanity is how we're going to build that future. I didn't expect to get philosophical quite so early in our conversation, but you opened the door, and so I, I have to I have to go there. Uh, you uh, have just outlined 
Roddenberry's vision of of you know Trek and the future, and and in fact he is on the record as saying I really dislike the the sort of militarization of Trek, you know, and as it moved into deep space or into uh, uh, the next generation, there were some challenges in getting those stories that were not Roddenberry enough. Yet many of the Trek that has come since has really leveraged the challenges of you know that that come in the space of war and peace and and force us to ask these these sort of giant questions of our technology when technology can be used for such good and turn around and in the same breath be used for such such evil. I am you know I, I I've been reading your book and I regret to say I'm not yet finished with it, but the the space on cloaking devices. Uh, has me giddy because I'm thinking about, oh, oh my goodness, when can I get cloaking paint on my car? Well, that's kind of a double-edged sword because when I can get cloaking paint on my car just for fun, uh, somebody else is going to be using it to do something very, very bad. And and that was sort of the dichotomy that that Roddenberry both sort of danced with and shunned. Does that make you, as a as a scientist, as a technologist, does that make you think sideways about uh, about what Star Trek represents at all? You know, I think I think you've really hit on a really important point here because that's part of what I love about Star Trek is that it makes you confront these great ethical questions in everything you do. That you know, with with all of these great technologies comes a responsibility and comes you know some real potential and not so potential like immediate danger. Um, Alfred Nobel struggled with this, you know, with his invention of a new kind of high explosive. Uh, he said that he was really torn about this because on the one hand, he had made a weapon that was just incredibly destructive and it was being used for the destruction of all humanity or of a large section of it, um, which, which really grated at him and is part of why he created the Nobel Prizes. But when he spoke about it, he spoke about his dream of creating a weapon that would be so powerful that it would end war. And, you know, despite the fact that arguably with the advent of nuclear weapons, we've done exactly that, it hasn't exactly brought about world peace or a, a new harmony in everything. Um, but as we get into the- it's, a, it's very timely that we're even having that conversation right now. I think so. You know, with a certain country in uh, Asia and a certain country here in North America uh, threatening each other with nuclear weapons, this is- you know, this could be something right out of the 1980s or the 1960s or really any any decade where we've had some incredibly tense moments with a foreign power. You, you wonder a little bit, and, and this is me in, in sort of my media flights of fancy, you wonder a little bit if some of the more, uh, if, if Discovery, for example, were a little bit less of a journey of uh, a celebration of, of military technology. Uh, and an exploration of war, and more along the lines of the original series, circa, uh, you know, Bay of Pigs, right? Uh, if we had a better role model uh, on television, uh, that we may have better role models in government. You know, you you can argue about that for sure. Um, I don't know what the effect of, you know, how you portray characters in media versus who we choose to be our leaders in real life. 
where the cause and effect is there. Listen, when Star Trek first came out, there were other depictions of the future and space and uh, humanity taking this wonderful and terrifying journey into the stars. You, You had shows like The Day the Earth Stood Still about contact with aliens where where it is an alien invasion. And you had shows like Lost in Space, where you go out to to have a journey in space, and it winds up catastrophically derailing everything you've ever wanted for yourself, where, you know, suddenly you've become your own version of like Gilligan's starship. Star Trek was different. And in some ways, Star Trek, even with Discovery and its focus on war, you know, still is different. You know, I was I was just thinking about this because, uh, you know, we're talking just a couple of days uh, after the midseason finale aired. And with Star Trek Discovery, you know, yes, we we are immersed in a war and we have this powerful weapon that, you know, we don't have in the other Star Treks. And we have a conflict with the Klingon that really seems, at this point in time, irresolvable. It doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like the Klingons have any interest in peace. It doesn't seem like they can be reasoned with. It doesn't seem like they even have a goal other than let's fight with the Federation. So it's pretty hard to sort of see, you know, where are we where are we headed with this? But at the same time, Star Trek Discovery brings us aliens and life forms in forms that we don't recognize as being alive, right? We don't recognize incorporeal energy fields as being a sentient life form, but they gave us that with the Pavins. We don't recognize a network of single-celled creatures being a, you know, that that can make up a, a living, sentient, intelligent being that we can communicate with. But with the idea of the mycelium network, that's exactly what's happening. And we're doing more than just communicating with them. We're, we're trying to exchange information with them. We're trying to use them for their technological capabilities. And we're trying to benefit the entire Federation by allying ourselves with them and by and by becoming friends with them. And so even while discovery has its big focus on war and conflict, there's there's also this element of boy, we really do have to work together with these unfamiliar things that we struggle to understand like the space tardigrade to try and to try and create the future that we want to have. Asking that question specifically of the tardigrade, right? What is the difference between symbiotic relationships and exploitation, uh, which, which I think is is sort of paramount to the early exploration of of space in in Roddenberry's universe? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. What I what I look at, you know, the the tardigrade when we first when Discovery first takes the tardigrade on board and uses it. It's very clearly a, a parasitic relationship. The tardigrade doesn't benefit from this. The tardigrade is a natural species that communicates with this mycelium, but the Federation's influence on it is nothing but harmful to the tardigrade itself. However, by time Stamets figures out how he can communicate with there with a with the mycelium instead. In many ways, that is a symbiotic relationship, or at least a commensalistic relationship, where the mycelium doesn't get damaged from it, and Stamets appears more than eager to 
engage with the spores in this way uh, every single time he gets the opportunity to do it. One of the things that you, I notice you haven't done is write much about the Kelvin era trek in the book. Uh, is that an indication of your feelings about the science of J.J. Uh, Abrams' uh, adaptation and reboot, or uh, is it uh, is there something else to it? I, I think I think you may have subtly picked out something there uh, <laughs> that that has an element of truth to it. Um, the J.J. Abrams reboots to me. Um, we we just spent some good time talking about the spirit of Star Trek and and what that's all about. And the JJ Abrams reboots, all, all all three of the movies that I've seen from him, they um that's missing. It's just missing. I'll just I'll just come out and say for me, uh the heart of Star Trek isn't there in the JJ Abrams movies. That if you take sort of a an enlightened look back at the original series. Um, and you say like, boy, Captain Kirk was really uh, sort of a space cowboy back in back in those days, compared to someone like Picard, who was this this quintessential diplomat who who was willing to let people get fired on, who was willing to let allies go down if we had larger stakes in the game. Boy, Kirk would never do anything like that. But Kirk also needed to be bailed out. A bunch of times. Kirk also needed to, um, he needed to be rescued by Spock in a number of instances. He needed to, you know, fight the mirror universe Kirk in a number of instances. He needed, in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, um, I think that was maybe one of the toughest pills for many Kirk above all fans to swallow, that he needed to be rescued by Sulu at the end of the day. That was a very big deal. That's a, a very different Star Trek than what we were used to. And I really feel in the J.J. Abrams universe, it was really like the ethical questions of things were really just glossed over. It's more like, look how many butts I can kick super fast. And that's just glorified <laughs> and that's the way to go. And that made for a good entertaining movie, but it didn't feel like a Star Trek movie to me. So when you talk about the technologies there, you know, I did work in the artificial gravity and I did work in the, uh, you know, where they had the slipstream by the starbase, the gravitational slipstream. Right, so right. There are a few things that I think are classic technologies from Star Trek that really show up there. But of all of the Star Trek movies, uh, the the three most recent ones, they they really, I'll say, they they really failed to capture that same heartfelt like, oh, what do we do? what do we do in these uh, in these combat situations? What do we do in these tense situations, right? Even Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, it was about a lot more than Kirk versus Khan. It was, it was about right and wrong and revenge and eugenics and- um, Yeah, I mean, it's a story of payment coming due uh, for some really fundamentally flawed scientific decisions from generations ago. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an excellent description of it. And when you look at uh, my favorite of the, you know, I guess second wave of movies, when you had First Contact, um, where they where they go back in time and the Borger are taking over, um, that's that's an incredible thing where we actually look at Captain Picard get pushed past his breaking point, where 
where all he can do is, you know, and that's actually a very good exploration of, of PTSD, among other things. Um, but I think that's something where you look at Picard and what he's going through, and he he has to confront all of the darkness within himself, and he has to confront his humanity with his survival instinct and his instinct to protect other people from this evil and this pain that he himself has endured to get inside someone's head in those moments and to wrestle with that conflict and to and to have to figure out right from wrong what's the smart thing to do what's what's going to give the best outcome that's at the heart of star trek to me which technologies do we use and how do we use them and which ones do we eschew even though even though they could be beneficial because of the potential that they have to cause harm these are my favorite questions that Star Trek brings up. And I think that's also why I, I have the favorite episodes that I have with Star Trek as well. First of all, uh, I, what glory would have been if Star Trek First Contact actually had a Beastie Boys song in it? I'll let that one go. <laughs> uh, when you think about uh, what you, you know, you as a science communicator, uh, right, you, you've got this book, it, it is out. Why this book for you? Why now? Well, now, now I think is really the perfect time. For one, we've just passed the 50th anniversary of the original Star Trek, and we're in the 30th anniversary of the debut of Next generation which is the the series i grew up with i remembered when i was in high school there was a physicist named lawrence krauss who wrote a book on the physics of star trek and it didn't cover all of the technologies in star trek it only covered a few that were really physics focused like the transporter and warp drive and that was a very fun read for me in high school and when he he wrote about it um there were a few things that stood out to me. One was he was very pessimistic about a large number of the technologies because, you know, he sort of looked at, well, how does physics work and where are we right now and where do we think we're going to be and and how will it be possible, given the laws of physics that we know today, to get to this certain point? Well, that book was over 20 years ago. And there have been a number of really incredible scientific and technological advances that have occurred since then. If you take a look back now at the original series, at The Next Generation, even at Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise, and you take a look at where is technology now, a huge number of these technologies that we thought were going to be hundreds of years in the future a number of them are already here. A number of them are already here and so mundane that we take them for granted. You know, you pull out your smartphone and you start swiping away on it and you are using a more powerful miniaturized version of the pad computer that the next generation envisioned. Star Trek, the original series, only envisioned an electronic clipboard. When the next generation came out, it was revolutionary that they had a ship's computer that would house just so much information about things all in one massive starship, and that you could talk to it in voice commands, and it would talk back to you, that it would perform these computations based on what you asked it to do, and then speak to you back in your own native language. 
your smartphone does this and you don't even think twice about it, whether you're talking to Siri or Alexa or Cortana, whether you are just asking it a question and it goes to the internet and finds out the information, whether you are speaking to someone in a foreign language like Swedish and you speak in English and they hear it on their end with just a second or two delay in Swedish, they speak back to you in Swedish and a second or two later, you hear it back in English. The, these technologies are here. The Particularly the computational ones, it's, it's incredible when you think about how far it's come. When the original Star Trek debuted 51 years ago, the most powerful computers in the world, you know, filled the size of a room or at least the size of a very large table or cabinet and were less powerful than really your pocket calculator from the 1980s. Well, you come to the present day and you pull out that same smartphone, your smartphone in your pocket is more powerful than the entirety of computing power for all of humanity when the original series of Star Trek debuted. So, so much of this has come to fruition. But more than that, so much of what we thought was going to be just super far away appears to be very close, appears to be like, wow, we have a solution for this. This is not a, a science can't do this problem. This is just a question of, wow, we just need to engineer this. We just need to make the technological breakthroughs because the science behind it is completely sound now. And finally, there are other things that we thought would never happen. Things that 20 years ago we were writing about, that's an impossibility. And now we know, wow, we've made some real breakthroughs. And these once only imaginable technologies appear to be well on their way. And that's just so exciting to be able to say, you know, we envisioned this dream of what the future could be. And in many ways, technologically, we're making it happen now. We're bringing these to fruition and coming up with plans for how to make them real. It's something that should give everyone hope and not just hope for what the future could be, but hope that if we work together, we can actually create this better reality than, than where we are right now. It, it's such a funny thing to hear you talk about this. This is it, it sounds so much like my parents sitting around asking, where's my flying car? You know, because here we have these technologies, like you say, the, the universal translator. Well, that's in my phone. You know, I can talk to my house right now and ask her to turn out all the lights in any room in the house and she'll do it. Um, you know, I can do things that are amazing that are amazing, that I could not have ever imagined and didn't even really try because I was waiting for that next, like I was waiting for the transporter. I was waiting for warp drive. I was waiting for the flying car, the things that are big and glorious. Meanwhile, almost ignorant to the little insidious advances that are changing the world every single day. You know, they're, and they're everywhere, right? You, you yeah. walk into a supermarket or an airport and you don't think, oh, glory of glories that we live in a world with sliding doors that detect my presence. 
That was so interesting. You actually write, that is this, so your book is broken up by technology and sliding doors is one of them. How did sliding doors reach the level of uh, import to merit its own section? It was something that when I grew up, a sliding door was not futuristic to me, but going back to the original series and seeing and doing a rewatch of that, I started to realize that, you know, there was something very special about those sliding doors. These sliding doors weren't just like a pressure sensor where you step on them and they open, although that didn't even exist back then. The sliding doors seem to know what your intention was. If you were walking by the door but not towards the door, the doors wouldn't open. If you were walking towards the door but but you were going to stop and turn around and say something to someone else, the door didn't open. It was only when you had that intention of walking through the door and got close enough that the door actually opened. And that made me sort of think about, you know, has there been any progress towards that level of sophistication of the technology, because that would be a very curious thing to explore that I bet you people don't take for granted. And lo and behold, using infrasound technology or infrared technology where you can sort of do motion tracking on an object like a person, where you can do shape recognition to see is this a person or is this, you know, a cat walking towards the door, where you can do predictive analytics and predictive motion to say, where are they headed? How is their velocity changing with time? This is something where people are actually developing algorithms to say, who's walking towards the door? What's the optimal time to open or close the door? And and what can we do to sort of, you know, maximize the amount of energy efficiency in this case for keeping the door closed or opened you know, for the optimal amount of time to let the incoming person through, but not anyone who doesn't want to be coming in or out through. And that technology is actually being developed. So even though we have this sort of basic, you know, oh, you step over here and the sliding door opens, this is something where the technology is getting even more sophisticated than, you know, you'd, you'd really think we, we need it in many ways because, because it is a way to improve it. It is a way to make it better. And I thought that was a great example of what you just said, of an incremental improvement to a technology that may have already been around for a long time, and yet it's getting better and better as we move forward. I have a, a list of Star Trek nerd questions. Okay. These are questions in areas that we as uh, uh, film lovers and critics were not able to answer to our own satisfaction. And I am hoping that as I rapid fire some of these questions to you, you can set our minds at ease. And I warn you, some of our uh, of our most sort of uh, egregious scientific violators to our lay eye do come from the J.J. Abrams era. So prepare yourself. All right. All uh, right. Please nothing about lens flares. I don't I don't have the explanation. <laughs> nothing about optics. No, uh, I do have a question about planets in Star Trek uh, Nemesis, uh, which, as it turns out on rewatch, is not as bad of a movie as people seem to think it is. It is bundled with insurrection, I think, unfairly. But we do have this issue with the locked orbit between Romulus and Remus. Now, as a as a guy who spends a lot of time talking and educating about the motion of planets, how is it and why is it 
that Remus doesn't move in an orbit as it or orbits around their sun. Okay, so almost all locking happens um, from tides, right? You have these tidal forces where, where if you have a planet uh, that orbits a star, then the star is going to pull on the close end of the planet with just a little bit more force than the far end of the planet for something where there's an additional object that's spinning. Like we have our system that has the Earth and the moon. We know that over billions of years, the moon has slowed down the rotation of the earth considerably. And that if the sun would never die and nothing would ever change, that the moon would continue to spiral out and the earth would continue to slow down until the same side of the earth and the moon both faced each other. We know now with the moon that its one side always faces us because the earth's tidal forces on the moon are much stronger because of the earth's much, much greater mass. So the moon became tidally locked to the earth in only, we estimate, a few hundred thousand years. But in order to tidally lock the earth to the moon, that's going to take tens of billions of years. So that'll be longer than the lifetime of the sun. But things also depend on initial conditions, which is to say, if the earth was born with a much, much, much slower rotation... Uh, it would lock much more quickly. We can extrapolate back looking at rhythmic tidal floors uh, in the uh, sedimentary rock in the strata on Earth. And we know during the era of the dinosaurs, a day was only about 22 to 22 and a half hours versus a 24-hour day. And if we extrapolate that back 4 billion years or so, a day was only 6 to 8 hours. But that's what I mean by initial conditions. When the Earth started out, it was rotating very quickly, and it slowed down. The day has lengthened as much as it has because of these tidal effects. There's no guarantee that Remus and Romulus started out with the exact same rotational properties as one another. In fact, based on what we what we understand about planetary systems and formation, it would be pretty unlikely if they did. It would be pretty unlikely if they did form with the exact same rotational properties. It sounds like what you're saying, however, is that within the narrative of the film, uh, seeing that even in, in a few generations of the Romulan and Riemann people, this is uh, an accurate depiction of orbits and locking. I, I won't go as far as to say it, that it's it's necessarily accurate, but I will say that there's there's certainly plenty of room that depending on what the conditions of this of of things were in the past, it's not an unreasonable thing that, for instance, one world could be locked, or both worlds could be locked, or one could be locked and one wouldn't be. Um, like that's that's eminently reasonable. Um, in fact, as we learn more and more about the different types of planetary systems out there, we're sort of discovering interesting ways that you can have configurations that we said, oh, that's that's unlikely. Well, the universe has a lot of different chances out there. In our galaxy alone, we estimate that there are about 10 to the 12 planets 
out there orbiting stars. And that's not even counting moons. So with that many planet orbiting stars in our galaxy alone, you're going to get some real oddballs. You can get something even as odd as the Game of Thrones world, uh, just to throw a completely different, you know... (laughs) That's a that's a genre violation. I'm going to need to throw flat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're talking about the uh, the unpredictable winter. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know how long it'll last. And we don't need to look any further than Pluto's moons to see that. So Pluto has its main moon, Charon, and these two very massive objects orbit one another, and both of them are locked to one another. Like I told you, Earth would be to the moon in the far future. So Pluto and Charon are a relatively tight binary system. They they make three or four orbits around each other every 24 hours. And they and the same face always faces one another. But there are a series of outer moons. There are four outer moons that orbit the center of mass of Pluto and Charon. And all four of those moons tumble. They have irregular days. They have irregular seasons. They have irregular axial tilts. And so if you want to scale that up and have an Earth-sized world doing that tumbling with that irregularity, all you would need to do is have it be a moon of a binary gas giant system. So this is sort of the approach I took with everything in coming back to Star Trek, in the Star Trek universe, where if you say, hey, at the end of the day, I want a technology that does this, or I want a scientific thing that makes this work, then I'm not going to go look at it and say, you know, oh, like, well, how do I make dilithium crystals do this? Like, no, I'm, I'm, let's not do that. But, you know, we we can mention that that's how Star Trek did it. But realistically, we know Star Trek doesn't know exactly how this worked. If they did, it wouldn't be a science fiction show. It would be an instruction manual. (laughs) So what we do instead is we say, well, if we want this outcome, what scientifically valid things can we do to arrive at this outcome? And that's and that's how I've approached every one of those technologies. So when you bring up Romulus and Remus or just Remus and say, how how is this going to work? Then what I'm going to do is say, if you wanted this outcome, what scientific setup could I give you to have this work within the laws of physics as we understand them? And to, to make the long story short, the answer is yes, I can give you one. I can give you a setup <laughs> to say, if things started off this way, then they would be this way today. I will take that setup. Now, here's another one that is uh, has proven imminently frustrating. And again, we're coming at this from the perspective of the film, and the film is building a certain set of rules around how it handles its use of technology. Transporting has been a thing, this beaming technology, it has been a thing uh, in the universe, uh, the, the agreed-upon canon of Star Trek since the very beginning. You write uh, uh, quite a bit about beaming in uh, and, and transporting in the book. We have this first question which is you know maybe a quick rundown of what the transporter is doing because I have to tell you some of the the way you talk about it uh, really lights up it just checks every box for my anxieties uh, uh, and so uh, if we could talk just a little bit about what the transporter is doing and then 
I'd like to get your your take on the science when it violates its own rules, we think, later. Yeah, this is this is challenging because a number of people have talked to me about this, and some people who are fans of like the original series say, well, that's not how the transporter works. And some people who are fans of later incarnations of Star Trek say, no, those first people are wrong. That's, this is the way the transporter works. I'll say there's this argument. Basically, we know within Star Trek what happens is human beings are treated like some very intricate quantum state. Whatever you're transporting, you are some incredibly complicated quantum system. And we need to read all of your information in. We need to get that information into the computer, which they call, you know, the pattern buffers. And then we need to disassemble the atoms in your body, the particles in your body, and we need to reassemble you at a separate location. Now, two questions come up immediately. The first one is, do we need to send those same particles that made you up to the destination in order for you to be reassembled? This is a place where I think fans of different points of Star Trek argue, because in some locations, they talk about the matter stream, and they worry about this. And in other places, they say, no, 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 it doesn't matter, right? One proton here is identical to any proton anywhere else in the universe. This proton that's a part of you is not special from this proton that's a part of the wall next to you. Um, so we can reassemble you out of anything. So I, I don't really have a strong opinion on that, except to note from the particle physics point of view, these are identical particles as far as we can tell. I'll also point out that if I were to take a look at you or me today and you or me six or seven years ago and say, hey, how many of those particles in your body were there six or seven years ago? The answer is almost none of them. Particles cycle through your body all the time as you respire, as your cells die and new cells get created. Uh, even the atoms in your bones cycle in and out of your body over time. So I don't think the particular particles are what makes you who you are. Because obviously, for me, the biggest anxiety with a transporter is, hey, I, I can liken it to using a computer. If I hit cut and paste on a computer, I know what I'm doing is I'm not changing what that file is or what that text is. All I'm doing is I'm reassigning the address. I'm just saying whatever your address was, I'm wiping out that address and I'm giving you a new address, but nothing about you has changed. That's the kind of transporting I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind it being done to me. I wouldn't mind it being done to my dog or, or my loved ones. I would say, no, go ahead and transport it like that. What I worry about is what if it isn't cut and paste? What if it's copy, delete, and paste. The end result doesn't look any different. And this is what bothers me, is that end result looks exactly like the same thing I started with. It's going to have the same body as me, the same mind as me, the same memories, the same experiences, the same emotions, except I'll have been murdered 
and an entirely new being will have been created. And we see this play out when Captain Kirk gets cloned in a transporter accident, when Will Riker creates Thomas Riker in a transporter accident. Um, We've seen this play out a number of times. And until we get that issue sorted out, I'm going to side with Captain Archer from Enterprise when he says that he wouldn't even put his dog through that thing. Because I love my dog, and I don't want to replace it with identical, but not my dog. So, uh, and and this is it is in fact a, a favorite of philosophical uh, a philosophical point. You know, is is the is the uh, transporter a suicide machine? I think you you absolutely get to that, and it's terrifying. But it also, you know, within the the science of the of the film, there there are some rules around what you can and when you can transport and when you don't transport. Are there, you know, are there specific distances, for example, that uh, that uh, transporters are um, are somehow regulated against? Uh, I, um, I I I only ask that because when we get into the Kelvin universe, we do have the first major warp violation. Suddenly, we're not just uh, teleporting or transporting from the ship in orbit to a planet surface, which is table stakes at this point, we're transporting from, for example, Saturn to Earth. And then later, we have now introduced this whole new concept of transwarp beaming, which allows us to beam from Earth to Kronos, the Klingon homeworld, which is, to our, again, lay eye, seems like such a violation of the scientific rule set that they have built in Trek canon that it gets in the way of the narrative. Do you notice things like that? Is that something you spend any time thinking about, or is it just all part of the Abrams bucket of of, uh, scientific pain? Well, you know, I, I do notice that, but what I always try to do when I do notice something like that is I try to be as generous as possible, which is to say, I try and ask myself, okay, what do we have in the real world as far as teleportation goes? And the way we can do that is we can say, look, if I can read in the quantum state of a human being or a Klingon or, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch or whoever, not that Benedict Cumberbatch isn't a human, but you know, maybe. (laughs) And I can say, okay, let's assume I can read in all of that information and I know this quantum state now. What I can do is I can take this quantum information and I can entangle it. So what I can basically do is say, this is the difference between, you know, regular binary information, like it's a zero or it's a one, and quantum information where it's sort of an indeterminate state that's a superposition of zeros and one. So what quantum entanglement allows you to do is saying, well, if I have this photon and it's either spin, let's say up or down, plus one, minus one, I can entangle it with another photon and I don't need to determine what it is, right? This original photon I have, the one that holds the information about part of your quantum state, it's that superposition of plus one, minus one. But the entangled pair is a superposition of minus one, plus one. As long as I take these two entangled photons, I can pull them apart an arbitrary distance. And I can have them apart for an arbitrary length of time. So I can take a pair and have it here on Earth, and I can take another and I can send it all the way to Kronos, and I can do that 
with warp engines. I can do that with wormholes. I can do that, you know, as fast as I want or as slow as I want. And then when I want to make that beaming happen, when I want to beam that person over there, what I can do is I can say, okay, now I'm going to determine the quantum wave function. I'm going to make that measurement and maybe transporting them is what allows that to happen. Maybe the act of transporting is that quantum measurement that collapses that wave function. And if I collapse that wave function at that moment, then the destination, that quantum information over there is going to encode all the information of that person. So it's something that you just have to set up in advance. But if you set it up properly in advance, and you set it up far enough in advance and you're ready to do that transport, you can get all of that quantum information over to the destination pretty much instantaneously. So for that, if you say, well, we can teleport the information and then because we have this new technology, we can reconstruct the body and the mind out of that information, I'll say, well, that's how you'd be able to do it. So you know, obviously that isn't exactly how it plays out in the movies because they don't go through that entire setup and they don't go through that explanation. But I try and be as generous and po as possible and say, if A, B, and C are possible, and now you want to add D, are there extra ingredients I can add to make D possible? And for this one, I think the answer is yes. Although I don't necessarily think the storytellers did a good job of letting you know there's an extra ingredient. Oh, dear. Your generosity is going to make me have to watch this movie again. <laughs> uh, that does set at ease uh, some significant concerns in that movie. One more, and this is related to propulsion in the latest film. Now, there are three, as we know, three major types of propulsion for these starships. We have thrusters, we have impulse engines, and we have warp engines, right? And and one of the things I think you do very, very well in the book is you walk through the kind of wrangling of Einstein and relativity that, that the uh, Star Trek creators had to do consistently to build into canon a way to, tr for, to make interstellar travel possible and not completely screw up the narrative. How, how close do you feel like they came to, to getting it right? You know, I, I actually like it a lot because what they did, you know, and you'll notice that that warp drive has sort of changed uh, over the different series, that that how it works has changed and the way they talk about it has changed as they've gone to like, you know, from talking about, you know, certain warp patterns and fields to talking about warp bubbles to like they, they do, they sort of change along with the times and, and even the visual depiction of it changes. I, I'm actually a big fan of the way it looks in the new discovery when they finally go to warp, uh, which they, which, which they apparently very rarely do now that they have the spore drive. But I was pleased to see in the last episode, I'm like, oh, that's what warp drive looks like on the main view screen in Discovery. That's neat. <laughs> I like that they have these different ways to do it because it's sort of like warp drive is, um, is like painting with a very broad brush. You you put these broad strokes down, and it's very hard to to use warp drive to get a very precise distance away. In fact, that's 
the the whole idea that you could do like just a tiny little warp jump like that's that's the whole idea of the picard maneuver right which you know is uh is the stuff of legend for next generation fans but the right, idea right. that you know for warp drive you're going to need to do something so that you don't have this special relativity problem of aging, right? If you want to go to a star that's 40 light years away and you go there arbitrarily close to the speed of light, you could get there pretty fast. And if you want to come back, you can come back pretty fast. It might only take you, you know, days or weeks or months, depending on how close to the speed of light you go. But if it's 40 light years away and 40 light years back, then when you take that journey, everyone on Earth is going to have aged 80 years because that's how special relativity works. So when you want to go a long distance, you have to have some way to overcome that. And warp drive by distorting space, because in general relativity, you can alter the fabric of space, warp drive accomplishes that. Now, I, I talk in the book about how in the mid-90s, a physicist named Miguel Alcubierre came up with a space-time solution that actually accomplishes a warp drive within the framework of general relativity. That if you have the right properties that you can actually set up a, a bubble around a starship, then what you can do is you can contract the space in front of you by expanding the space behind you. So if you move forward in that direction across the contracted space, you know, you can maybe make that journey across 40 light years to that star um, in only days. So you get there, but because you contracted that space, people on Earth will have only aged days as well. And then when you come back, again, a journey of days, people on Earth will have only aged days as well. So that's a great way to avoid that catastrophic problem of, you know, oh man, now we've had people age at different rates. Um, that's a big problem for those of you who are fans of the sci-fi series, uh, Ender's Game and Speaker for the Dead, the whole Orson Card Scott okay. Card series of quartets. That's a big plot point that when you get on these ships and you travel these long distances away, uh, people back home age tremendously. And so they've, they've all been dead for thousands of years when you travel thousands of light years through space. So Warp Drive does a great job of circumventing that. Now, impulse engines are another thing on top of that where you say, okay, now we've made it to the star system and we want to do precise maneuvering. Well, you can move interplanetary distances in pretty good times with impulse engines, and that costs a lot of energy, but matter-antimatter annihilation can give you that energy without too much of a problem. So I think that having that two-tiered system, and then yes, you can add like conventional thrusters for more precise maneuvering than even impulse engines will give you, I, I think is, is a great way to do things. And I think that each one of them is conceivably physically possible. There's an ingredient that we need for warp drive, which is some type of either negative mass or negative energy for the universe that may or may not be possible. That's still speculative. But if that exists, if we wind up with that, then 
you know, this technology, which just one generation ago was thought to be just pure total fiction, suddenly moves from fiction into the realm of science possibility. And if it becomes a science possibility, then to me, it's just an engineering question. It's just a technology question. And it's only a matter of time and resources before it becomes real. Last uh, last nerd question I have on the list, and this is just uh, it, this is a personal one. This didn't come from any of our community. It didn't come from the shows. I realize we've never talked about shields, and and there is this whole sort of category of shields and tractor beams and phasers. This sort of projection of energy to do something, whether it's pull something toward us or protect us, and and diffuse uh, other energy like the like an energy shield around the ship. In Star Trek: First Contact. We have, I'm sure it's not the first moment of this, but it is a moment where we see an energy shield that is used not just as an energy barrier, a barrier for, you know, energy weapons to protect the ship's hull, but an atmospheric barrier too, where you have this projection of energy. He can open the door to the bay and he's having this conversation with Alfred Woodard and he can knock on it. It becomes a thing that's sort of tangible and it protects them. It protects the atmosphere inside the ship. This is used again in Nemesis when the entire front piece of the Enterprise bridge is ripped off uh, in the collision between the scimitar and the enterprise and they use an energy shield to protect the ship so the question is at what point do do we have energy barriers that diffuse other energy rays beams phases whatever and they actually are things that i can use to replace the screens on my house you know the that's that's a really interesting question so if you're looking at these individual technologies you know of course it's nice to say let's just have it be one all-purpose technology that i can just make something that acts like matter when I want it to, acts like energy when I want it to, and will deflect what I want it to deflect and not deflect what I don't want it to deflect. Um, There's Obviously, we don't have one all-purpose technology like that. So what I like to do is I like to look at, well, what are the ways we can make these various things work? Uh, tractor beams can work just by having photons that you can say, if I fire photons from two different directions with the proper polarization, uh, because it's an electromagnetic wave and particles, you know, are made out of matter, I can confine them to a particular location that that can be a stable fixed point where things will naturally not want to move away from. So that's how I can use a tractor beam to hold things in place. And then by changing the properties of the waves, I can slowly draw them in. And that's, that's exactly what a tractor beam does. And that's a great technology that we've demonstrated for small but macroscopic particles, not just like electrons or protons or something, but, but we can do that for small materials, even in the vacuum of space. So that's a technology that I say, you know, well, you talk about this long range energy force and what can it do? That's, that's a pretty good deal. 
For deflector shields, this is something where if you want to deflect something like an energy weapon like light, uh, then what you need is a confined ionized plasma. And that's something that we've actually worked out theoretically and built prototypes of experimentally. It doesn't necessarily cover the full electromagnetic spectrum and it doesn't stop matter in the same way. But that's a really big step that we've taken where you can reflect and deflect light weapons away. If you had a deflector shield that worked on phasers, you would think that was pretty good. And we're, we're well on our way to that. As far as having a an energy field that acts like matter that's a little bit dicier that's a technology that i haven't really found a good way to make that work yet but the closest thing i've got to that is if you can have a holodeck or hollow emitters that have matter holograms you know real life tangible matter holograms then surely you can use that same technology to set up a barrier between wherever you are and whatever you're doing and deep space. And so like in Star Trek Generations, where the uh, Nexus sucks Captain Kirk in by causing a hull breach on the Enterprise B, but the Enterprise B is able to put up a shield like if you imagine that that's a matter hologram instead of a shield, then then perhaps that works. Perhaps that can keep things in. And this showed up in Discovery very recently when Michael Burnham was kept from being blown out the airlock or from blown out of the ship right. where they had a massive hull breach. And and well, and then I think it was in one of the second episode or something where they had her, you know, jumping from area to area from the, her prison that her prison cell that was just uh protected by yeah uh, i think that was i think that was the second episode yeah well and that and so you you brought up the hollow emitters and that gets to another kind of favorite source of of disgruntlement around uh, uh, uh of uh, around you know where the science is is able to to work and where it is not there's great speculation around how how we can turn off safeties in a thing, a place that doesn't exist. How do we have this room that doesn't have floors made of treadmill that, <laughs> that offers you the this access to an essentially unlimited, um, unlimited universe? Right, and this is this is again where I say you know not everything is going to look the way Star Trek envisioned it, but. When I look at the advances that have been made in virtual reality and augmented reality, I think, you know, there are a lot of things that if you want this experience of a holodeck, uh, we're a lot closer than people think. So you're, you're aware that you can put on these, you know, VR glasses and these big headphones and you can, you can have a simulated experience in a virtual world. And as visuals get better and 3D sound gets better, it, it's going to act better. But what most people don't recognize is this is well on its way to incorporating more senses and a multiplayer environment where if you put people in the same room, uh, they can go around and have that computer projection, put them in accurate proximity to one another, that you can pump uh, smells and odors into the room and bring in that olfactory sense in addition to your sight and your sound, and that you can add in infrasound technology 
where you can feel um, as though there's actual matter there. One of the craziest simulations I've seen recently is they made a virtual reality simulator that had some of these infrasound emitters around where it looked like when you look through the eyepieces that there were these falling drops of water. And in three dimensions, you can go to move your hand underneath where you think these drops are coming from. If you successfully put your hand under the drop, then the drop goes splash and you feel it splash in your hand. And because of this infrasound technology that that the sound hits your hand and makes that pressure wave, it actually feels wet which is an incredible advance. So if you're saying like, oh, you know, I'm really worried about turning the safeties off so that, you know, we can get killed there. I I think we're probably a long way from that. But if you're asking, you know, well, what can you do about, um, about actually giving tactile feedback and creating these sensations and, and giving a more real reality to virtual reality, I think, you know, if you look at the advances we've made since, for instance, the holodeck was first unveiled on Star Trek The Next Generation, I, I remember thinking, you know, when Wesley Crusher falls into the stream in the first season, thinking like, oh, there's no way he'd ever like be wet like that. But now they can actually simulate the sensation of wetness just with pressure waves. So maybe the future isn't going to look exactly the way Star Trek envisioned it, but maybe these things that we wish were there are actually on their way. Well, I'll tell you, you have uh, blown beyond my expectations of this conversation. Uh, the the my entire purpose here was just to uh, just to bring up some of these scientific issues and see if an expert like yourself could actually uh, create and pave me a path. To believability and and I think uh, you, you nailed it for my purposes. Thank you so much, uh, Ethan. I I guess you know I I rolled over you in the beginning of the show because I wanted to hold this question for last. You said you, you made mention of your favorite Trek episodes, and so I I do have this question uh, with a couple of acceptable answers. What is your favorite Trek, and uh, what's your favorite Trek that you love? even though you have to you find you have to forgive it its scientific trespasses well my favorite trek of all is the next generation and there were just so many iconic episodes to me there where where they do wrestle with the ideas of right and wrong and where things aren't very clear i i love the conversation in uh, season 2 episode the measure of a man where they put data on trial for his rights to his own autonomy for his rights to is he alive? Is he a sentient being? And I think this is even more of an important conversation as we enter the era of artificial intelligence. At what point does something artificial need to be granted the rights of a living thing? Um, and and it's, it's tremendous that we that we are actually needing to ask this question and and it's handled so well with by Star Trek because they don't have the answer. I love in Deep Space 9 um that same thing where they bring up the ethical questions between privacy and security when they had the two-part episode where they have the Dominion invasion of Earth and they were changelings on Earth and the attempted coup by Admiral Layton um 
and Cisco has to go to Earth and get blood samples from people to prove that they're humans and not changelings, and he gets resisted by his dad, who tells him that this is this is not the way, this is not how we do things, this is not like we don't sacrifice our freedoms and our privacy just for this guise of security that isn't even real. And Cisco has his goons hold his dad down and forcibly take his blood. And you can see the betrayal in the dad's eyes and Cisco does it. And he takes his dad's blood and it accomplishes nothing that of course his dad is just his dad. It doesn't accomplish anything. And Cisco just has to live with this bad decision that he makes made and the harm he's done to his dad and how he's violated his principles for no good end. And that, that's a really, that was such a painful moment for me in Star Trek where I watched that, where I was like, I was yelling at the television and I was outraged that someone would do that. And then, you know, looking back on that, I think, you know, this is really a good example of how we are flawed people and we do make bad decisions and we we give in to our fears sometimes, but that doesn't mean we're destined to always get it wrong. It doesn't mean we're irredeemable. I think Deep Space Nine is a, is a series where they get into a lot of like religious and pseudoscientific hokum, but because they're not afraid to to really confront these issues of what do you do in the aftermath of a war? What do you do with marginalized people who you look at as backwards in so many ways, but who also are entitled to their rights, to, to their own autonomy and their self-determination, and to choose their own demagogues like the Kai? Like, what what do you do in that situation? I I think I'm willing to forgive a lot of those things on Deep Space Nine because they they are willing to consider this darker aspect of humanity and and confront it as, as far as they absolutely can. And and uh, because we're a film podcast, which of the films holds up the best for you? Oh, I mean, my favorite film is going to be uh, First Contact, for sure. I, I tried to rewatch the original Wrath of Khan lately, and there are elements of it that ho- hold up, but it's, it's a very slow-moving movie. But I, I am also going to give a little shout-out to the originals and say that the Voyage Home has some really great feelings for me, both for the uh, punk on the bus scene played like just so <laughs> right. memorably by Kirk Thatcher. And, you know, he wrote that song that he's playing yes. when uh, when Nimoy uh, neck pinches him. Um, but also for that fun little aside of transparent aluminum that here we are you know, 30 plus years later and transparent aluminum is actually real and is used in everything from bulletproof glass to sidewinder missiles, which is what enables it's the transmission of the infrared light through the transparent aluminum that allows sidewinder missiles to actually do their heat seeking action. Which is pretty incredible. So so I like this idea that this technology that was just sort of a guess, I suppose, for transparent aluminum is actually something that's real now. 
That's fantastic. They roll the dice, and uh, you know, you have a picture in the book of the uh, of of the uh, molecular structure of transparent aluminum. Uh, is is it is it close? Did they get that lucky? Um, you know, I think one of the benefits of having it very small on a blurry screen is that I guess all you can do is squint really hard and say, "Yeah, that's about right." <laughs> well, I'm going to put links to uh, anywhere you want me to put links. Where would you like to send people to learn more about you and your work and your writing you know i think i think the best place to go to learn about my writing is my website on forbes i'm at forbes.com slash sites slash starts with a bang my blog starts with a bang has been going for almost 10 years now i started it in january of 2008 so on on new year's we're going to be celebrating i suppose 10 years of writing about science on the internet, um, which is incredible. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, I have a page starts with a bang. I'm on Twitter. My handle is starts with a bang. And uh, of course, I'd encourage you to send people over anywhere books are sold, including on amazon.com to check out, to check out Treknology, uh, the real life science of Star Trek from Tricorders to Warp Drive. It's a fantastic read. Uh, I have deeply enjoyed it. Uh, as I said this morning, it's a, it's just great. I can't wait to, to wrap up. I've, I've just the last, uh, last section here. Well, uh, I'll tell you something you've missed from the last section. If you haven't finished it is when we get into Jordy's visor, um, and restoring sight to the blind, I am amazed that we, we have this technology that maybe goes even beyond the visor now where we can implant, uh, a chip into someone's visual cortex and wirelessly from an external camera anywhere on the electromagnetic spectrum send signals to their visual cortex and have their brain interpret it as a visual signal. This is something where you don't even need optic nerves or eye sockets to be able to allow someone to see. And yet, that same type of question we've been talking about, the right and wrong, the ethical questions, boy, if you consider how catastrophic it is when computer passwords get hacked. Imagine if you have a chip in your brain that is linked directly to your visual cortex and that gets hacked. Imagine what type of advances we'd need in cybersecurity in order to be able to make visual implants a, a viable technology. When we have to worry about just hijacking ideas through the insinuation of ads on Facebook. Uh, and and now I have to worry about people plugging in to my brain to show me things. The, the ads are going to be absurd. Can, can you imagine if you're out there on the road and someone's like, oh yeah, the road totally curves to the left here. Like that could be the end of you. That is, oh, that's well, thanks. There's another one. You you write these lines. Like I, I didn't even get into uh, the, the whole idea of um, quantum states and how we could use the transporter to wake the dead. Where is my Star Trek zombie series? Uh, and and uh, lines like this, to rip the blood vessels right out of your vital organs, similar to what a skydiver whose parachute doesn't open experiences. My goodness, man, you are, you are the stuff of nightmares <laughs> as much as I adore this book. 
Uh, thank you, Ethan Siegel, for joining me today on The Next Reel. We sure appreciate it, man. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening. You know where to find us, nextreel.com. Uh, we are, as, as, I'm, as I'm speaking right now, we are uh, wrapping up our Ricardo Darín series. Fantastic Argentinian actor. If you haven't checked out his films, oh, my goodness, you've got to go check out Secret in Their Eyes. Do that uh, before that show goes live right now. Thanks, everybody. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.